0: From the first two sermons, we have found that we have powerful enemies in positions of rulership on the earth at this time. We found also, though, that the struggle that we have against them is heavily weighted in our favor. And I gave you four reasons why it is weighted in our favor. Number one was that the good angels, those ministering spirits, that those flames of fire, as the Apostle Paul called, called them, far outnumber the bad demons. It seems if we can get any kind of a general figure from the scriptures, that they outnumber the bad ones at least two to one. In addition to that, we found that the demons are hopelessly divided, and a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. They really can't get their act together because they are operating out of self-centeredness, self-indulgence. It's every man for himself, and once in a while they'll get their act together for a little while, they'll cooperate but only because there is a commonality that they want to accomplish. But most of the time, they are hopelessly divided. The third reason was, we read in the book of James, that they know God exists, and they tremble. They That word actually means terrified. They are terrified of God. Not like men who shake their fist at God. The demons are afraid of God. And that has a tendency to keep them in line. And we also found That the fourth thing was, from the book of Job, that God has set limits on what they are permitted to do. We found that this is highly individualistic, that a demon might be able to do one thing to one person and, and not the same thing to another, because God is considerate of our strengths and weaknesses. And he tells us that he will not allow us to be tempted by anything that is more or greater than we are able to bear. So... We have this going for us, and it should give us assurance that God, though he is permitting us to go through these things, he has not cut himself off from us, and there really is no need to be terrified of them. Deeply respect, yes, but to be afraid of them, no. Now, in this sermon, I feel that it's necessary at this point to understand at least the basics of what we are, and how Satan gets his persuasions into our minds, and if we get that far, what he is trying to lead us to. We're going to begin in Genesis, the first chapter, Genesis 1 and verse 31. At the end of the creation week, the recreation week, it says here that then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. I think it's good to note there that mankind was not perfect, but we were very good. It does say in the context that mankind was created very good for the purpose. This has to be understood. It is implied for the purpose God was going to carry out. Now, this also tends to indicate something about Satan as well, and that is that he is not necessary to God's purpose. He is here. We have to deal with him but he is not necessary to God's purpose. And since we know that he is going to be confined to the abyss, to the pit, he is symbolically chained during the millennium, and God's purpose is going to be carried out during the millennium, we then understand that God is able to carry through with his purpose of the reproducing of himself without Satan around. You might say it is an added bonus for us to have to deal with Satan. And because this added bonus is there... I think that the rewards are going to be greater as well. Now, we find in Genesis 3 that Satan intruded himself into the scene. He is here, and therefore, we must deal with him. God permitted it. He didn't chase him away. He permitted Adam and Eve to be tested by Satan, and we understand then that he is going to permit Satan to test us. Now, let's go back into the New Testament 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, and we will go through a series of scriptures here that uh, Mr. Armstrong went through many, many times. 1 Corinthians 2. Now, we're going to read quickly through, without comment, verses 6 through 9, and uh, then verses 10, 11, and 12, we'll make some more comment and then go back to at least one of the ones in the first three. However, we... Now, the we there... Undoubtedly speaks in its broadest sense to all of the people who are part of God's church, but in its narrowest sense, it is the ministry that He is talking about. He says, We, of course, meaning himself and others speak wisdom among those who are mature. Those who are mature are the church members, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. He is setting the stage for something here. He is going to make a comparison between one group of people and another group of people. Those who are mature and those who are not. Those who are converted and those who are not converted. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers, meaning the leaders of this age, knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't realize that he was the God of creation, they didn't realize that he was the Savior. They could not discern the things that he was saying and doing. They did not put them in the right context. They didn't see uh, what he was doing and saying from the right perspective. So then Paul says, But as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard or have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed them To us through his Spirit, for the Spirit teaches all things, yes, the deep things of God. You see now the comparison. The reason the rulers of the world did not understand, put into the proper perspective, they didn't grasp what they saw in the Lord of glory because God had not revealed to them who Jesus was, what he was doing, or why he was doing what he was doing. The reason is, is because those things cannot be discerned by physical means. Eye, ear, nose, mouth, the senses. But rather, these things have to be revealed. There has to be a spiritual miracle take place for a person to understand, to see these spiritual things. Verse 11, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him, even so, in like manner, No one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is from God that we might know the things that we have been freely given or that have been freely given to us by God. Now God created us physical and mortal. He created us very good, but He also placed within us a Spirit. Now that is the key really to this entire sermon. We are building on this understanding that we have been given a spirit. Now that spirit is not an immortal soul. It is not the man. It is a non-material element within the man that imparts to the man the power of intellect so that he is able to grasp, to understand the physical things of this world. It is what separates man from an animal. Though an animal may have a brain that is similar to man's, yet the animal does not have a spirit. It did not have imparted to it a spirit giving it the intelligence, the intellectual capacity which a man has. And so man is different from those other physical beings that also have life. Now this non-material element does not possess life Of itself, the Bible very clearly says that our life is in the blood. says that a couple different times. So the, the spirit did not impart life to us. The spirit is dependent upon the body for use or for carrying out its function. Now, the spirit cannot see on its own. It cannot hear on its own. It needs the eyes, it needs the ear, it needs the brain to sort all of these signals out in order to make use of them. Now, there's a very simple way that this can be proved. If a person's eyes don't work, the spirit can't see. If the person's ears don't work, the spirit cannot hear. Now, this is necessary in order to carry out the other function of the spirit as well as we are able to understand it. Now, our words or the illustrations that that I use here may not be entirely uh, adequate to the situation, but the spirit does impart to the human brain the power of intellect, but it needs the brain. It cannot function there without it, but it has an additional capacity that it is able to use the brain to be a receptacle for the information that it processes, and apparently also be of use to draw upon that information, that is, our memory, and then use it. Now, I I have read in news magazines, other publications, things entirely apart from the Church of God that seem to indicate, at least this was the conclusion, that these experimenters reached. And that is that by prodding different areas of the brain with... Small charges of electricity. They were able to induce the person to recall things that were stored in the person's memory. Their conclusion was that the brain never forgets a single thing that ever happened in your life. So we see two clear functions that apparently are functions of the spirit in man. One to impart the power of intellect using the human brain and the other organs of the body, and two, to facilitate the brain in recording the experiences of life so that they can be recalled upon. We need this desperately to be able to recall. If we cannot recall, what good is information? Both functions are absolutely necessary. Now God, therefore, not only created us mortal but he also then created us with a spiritual capacity in fact understanding this in the light of genesis 1 we can begin to understand why he used uh, uh, let's say another angle on why he under, why uh, he used the term very good and that is that we were incomplete we were good as far as we went but there was much more to come And we were incomplete because we understand from other parts of the Bible that man needs another spirit joining with his spirit so that he can have then the capacity to make use of, to see, to comprehend spiritual things, as well as the things of a man. Now this is what 1 Corinthians 2 is explaining as causes a separation, a difference between those who are unconverted, those who are converted, those who are the immature, and those who are the mature. The only difference is those who are mature, those who are converted, have this second spirit that has joined with their spirit in order to impart to them what we might call a spiritual intellectual capacity. That then becomes a part of their life and they can use it when others, for whatever God's purpose, have to this point been denied the use of that. Now, I think we want to go back to verse 7 now because this verse is important in understanding this concept here. Paul says, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom of "...which God ordained before the ages for our glory." Our is the Christian. Now the word mystery is not the same as our English usage of the word mystery. Remember this was written in the Greek. And mystery to them meant not a puzzle that was difficult to solve, but a secret impossible to penetrate mystery to them was something that was hidden. It was unintelligible to those who were not initiated as into a secret society or as into a religion. Most of you have heard of the mystery religions. And what they did was unintelligible to those who were on the outside. But to those who were on the inside, it made clear sense to them what was being said or spoken enacted in their ritual or whatever it was they happened to be doing. So that's what we're dealing with here. It was a secret impossible to penetrate, not a puzzle that was difficult to solve. And so what is crystal clear to those who are on the inside was unintelligible to those who are on the outside. In like manner then, to those who have received the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, has joined with the spirit in man And it has added a dimension to man's life that he previously did not have. And so then, things that are crystal clear to him are unintelligible to those who do not have this added dimension. Now, we find then that it, meaning the things of the Spirit, have been revealed by God. Now, back to verses 10 through 12. We see four things here. They are, one... There is a spirit in man which enables him to understand physical things. Number two is that God reveals through his spirit, or he reveals to man through his spirit, that which enables a man to penetrate the deep spiritual things of God. Number three, we have received the spirit which is from God, and there is a spirit of this world, very sobering, as we shall see, and so we are warned. So we see here, at least clearly, three different spirits. The spirit in man, the spirit of God, and the spirit of this world. Now again, remember Genesis one thirty one. God himself said that we were very good. Now, This is an expression of pleasure. He was pleased with what he had accomplished. Now, if we were very good when he created us, then that must include the nature he created us with. Does God take pleasure in a nature that is enmity against him? Romans 8, 7. I don't think that he would take pleasure in that at all, which indicates very strongly then that as he created us and as we are born, we do not have the nature that we later come to have that is, enmity against him. It is something that develops. And as we're going to see, it develops because God put a spirit in us that other spirits, either God himself or the spirit of this world, is able to communicate with. Now, if this spirit that he's talking about there in Genesis one thirty one was very good, then how come human history... Has been a recording of violence, disease, anguish of spirit. Why is there so much bitterness, anger, prejudice, resentment, doubt, self-pity, vanity, envy, greed, jealousy, pride, and lust. Can you find anywhere in God's word that these are called good or even acceptable? Those things did not come from God. He did not create us that way. God is love. God is kind. God is generous. God is good. God is merciful. I think that we can honestly conclude that they didn't come from man either, as he was created by God, because God judged man to be very good. And yet, mankind expresses these very attributes. Again, with something God pronounced very good, produce what we see, I think then that we can reach the conclusion that they must have come from the spirit of this world. They must have come from Satan, who is invisible, he is soundless, but he is able to communicate with us. Now let's begin to pursue this. Go back to Ezra, the first chapter. Ezra 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Ezra 1, verse 1. That the word of the Lord, spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah, might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying. Now, we needn't go any further there. It just says very clearly, does it not, that God was able to, dis- to spur- stir the spirit of Cyrus. Now, there is no indication that Cyrus was aware that God was stirring him up. He just somehow was motivated to issue this proclamation. He may have thought the idea really came from him. He may have thought the idea may have come from one of his advisors. But for some reason, he all of a sudden had this inclination that he wanted to give the Jews the opportunity to go back to their own homeland. Now, it's very clear from this verse, we want to be conservative with it, it is very clear that our spirit can be communicated with, without our being aware of what is going on. Now, I want to make sure that you understand this, and that is, I do not say that we will not always be blind to this or insensitive to it. I think that it is God's intention that we become very sensitive to the fact that something, someone, is trying to communicate with us on a level that is not discernible by the eye or the ear. But that nonetheless, our spirit is being stirred to go in a certain direction, for good or for bad. So I, I think that that's where we need to begin to realize that we may or may not be aware but we all have to agree at this time that our spirit can be communicated with. Okay, now let's go to 2 Kings. And uh, here we're going to see some examples of times when the human spirit was being communicated to by spirit beings. Now, the first one that we're going to look at is not one that there was necessarily a communication. But I use this scripture or series of scriptures because I want you to show that there is an awful lot of activity that is going on on earth that we are not able to physically discern. But God shows us in his word that these things are happening and he wants us to be well aware that this activity is going on. Okay, 2 Kings, in the 6th chapter, in verse 14. 2 Kings, the 6th chapter, and in verse 14. Now let's go back just a little bit so that we can set the stage in verse 8. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he took counsel with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God, who was Elisha, sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. And then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice, but many times. So what we see here is that the king of Syria wanted to do some dirty deeds against Israel, but God was stirring up the spirit of his prophet Elisha, this was in the northern ten tribes, so that he would understand what was going on in the secret councils of the king of Syria. And then Elisha would send a message to the king of Israel and say, don't go here, don't go there, because if you do, you're going to run into this huge army and they're going to attack you. Well, the, the king of Syria became totally frustrated because he could not spring any kind of a surprise. So he, he got his advisors together and said, what in the world's going on? We've got a spy in the ranks. Who isn't? And his advisor said, no, there's no spies here. Nobody's being disloyal to you. It's just that the king of Syria has this prophet that keeps telling him what you're saying in your bedroom. So uh, they decide to lay a trap to catch Elisha. Okay, now that's where we pick it up. So they surround the city that Elisha is in. It's the city of Dothan. Dothan is about 10 miles from Samaria. Elisha's servant gets up in the morning and he goes out to do whatever he was going to do. Oh, my Here's this huge army of Syrians who are surrounding the city. That's where we come into the story. Therefore he sent, verse 14, and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, Elisha could not literally see with his eyes all of these spirit beings that were out there on the mountains. But by faith, through the eyes of faith, because he knew God, because he was close to God, he understood that God was with him always. And here was this tremendous army of angelic beings protecting his servant Elisha. Now whether that army was always there is a moot point. They may have been there simply because the Syrian army was there. It didn't matter whether there was one or many. It was really an indication to God, through Elijah, through the vision, to this young man, that wherever God is, it's weighted in your favor. And that we have no need to fear the many who may come against us. Okay, now, I use this situation so that you will understand that there is more for us than there is against us, and that there is a great deal of spiritual activity that is taking place where we are that we are not physically able to discern. But it's there. God is showing us that it's there. And so this is intended by God to give us some encouragement. Now from this we ought to be able to understand then that God is greater than any emergency we might find ourselves in. That's the lesson. That there is more for us than there is against us. He tells us in Psalm 34 and in verse 7 that the angel of the Lord encamps round about them that fear him and delivers them. So we find here then A man of God who understood by spiritual discernment that things are going or were going on around him, and by the same token, because we have the Spirit of God, we should also be sensitive to this because God's Word shows that this is what is occurring. Now, to most people, they only see what is human. And in fact, physically, that's all we're going to be able to see. But we have to know, it has to be part and parcel of the way or the means, the wherewithal by which we act, that Jesus Christ, a divine spirit, is the guiding force of his church. He tells us that he will never leave us or forsake us, and that the other side of this is that just as sure as there are spirit beings that rule and guide the church, there are also spirit beings that rule and guide the world. So we see both sides of it here. Now let's go to 2 Kings 19. Now this scripture here reinforces what we just saw there in 2 Kings 6, but it takes us into a more specific situation. In 2 Kings 19, I I will just give you the background here. The Assyrians had put together a very great army, and uh, nothing was standing before them. Now if you can, in your mind's eye, Kind of visualize where Assyria is in relation to Palestine or Jerusalem. It is almost directly north, maybe just a little bit to the, to the east, but quite a number of hundreds of miles away across the Tigris, across the Euphrates River. We're not talking about the nation of Syria, but the nation of Assyria. Now, at the time that this occurred, they were at the peak of their power anciently under King Sennacherib. And so they started on a a policy of invasion and conquering. They began to sweep south and undoubtedly went through what was Medo-Persia, crossed the Tigris and Euphrates River, entered into uh, what is today Iran and Iraq and on into Syria. And they had gotten with their army as far as the city of Jerusalem and were on their way to Egypt. And they were just sweeping everything before them conquering left and right. Now you can imagine what that must have done to the Assyrians. Nobody can stand before us. And we see this here in the kind of attitude that Sennacherib had whenever they got to Jerusalem. So we'll pick it up in verse 21 because now God is speaking and he has heard the proud words of Sennacherib as he has surrounded Jerusalem He's put the siege on, and he's now getting ready to sack the city. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, Sennacherib, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? This is a question from God. Do you realize, Sennacherib, who it is that you are blaspheming when you speak those words against my city, Jerusalem? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have reproached the Lord. Anything attached to God, if it is attacked, if it is impugned, if it is blasphemed, it's the same as attacking God. He's showing the attachment, the relationship is that close. And so we find, he says, by your messengers you have reproached the Lord and said, By the multitude of my chariots, I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter the extremity of its borders to its fruitful forests. I have dug and drunk strange water. And with the soles of my feet, I have dried up all the brooks of defense. It's flowery language, picturesque, in order to show us to understand that nothing stood in Sennacherib's way. He just mowed everything down. Now, the problem is, (laughs) Sennacherib got all puffed up. And he thought that he was doing this by his own military brilliance, by his strategy, and by the, the, the power of his armaments. Verse 25, did you not hear long ago how I made it from ancient times that I formed it? Now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified city. (laughs) Hey, Sennacherib, I was the one who gave you the victories. I was the one who raised you up and decided that these other cities needed to be spanked. They needed to be humbled. I was the one who enabled you to be able to do these things. You didn't do this by your own power. It wasn't your military brilliance. It wasn't the power of your armaments. It was because I made it possible for you to do that. Verse 26, therefore, their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as grass of the field as the green herb. He just trampled them all down. Now, in short, what God says, Sennacherib, because you didn't give me credit, I am now going to smash you. Now, it's interesting how he did it and we will pick that up in verse 32. Now let's go to verse 35. And it came to pass on a certain night, you know, picture Sennacherib's armies surrounding Jerusalem, all of their tents out out there. Tens of thousands of tents, almost 200,000 men in his army. All of their mechanisms that they might have used for launching boulders against the the walls of the city of Jerusalem. All of their arrows sharpened. All of them covered with pitch so that they could fire these things into the city and set it on fire. All ready to attack. It came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed the camp of the Assyrians, 185,000. And when the people arose early in the morning, there were corpses. All dead. So Sennacherib... King of Assyria departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. And we find in verse 37, he was assassinated after he got back there. Now I use this because I want you to see that there is spiritual activity going on in the affairs of men. That God is not sitting idly by, just letting things happen. But he has his ministering spirits working with him to govern this creation. So God, we see, was deciding the issue. We can look in other areas. The city of Jericho took a great deal of of pride in their powerful walls. But God, a spirit being, made them fall down. Belshazzar took a great deal of power in the might, or a great deal of pride in the might and power of Babylon. And yet he fell. In one night when God deemed that it was time for another nation to rise in the place of Babylon. And so spirit beings are at work. And they are working within our environment. I mean mankind's environment. And they are ensuring that the purpose of God is being carried out. Now let's go to another one in First Kings, the 22nd chapter. And this one gets even more specific. 1 Kings, the 22nd chapter. Now, here we have an alliance has been made between Ahab, the king of Israel, a bad king, and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, a good king. Verse 4 These two got together, and uh, so he, Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. I'm with you all the way, Ahab. And then Jehoshaphat had second thoughts. Maybe I spoke too soon. Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Please inquire for the word of the Lord today. And then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go against Ramoth-Gilead to fight, or shall I refrain? So they said, Go up, for the Lord will deliver you into the hand of the king. Jehoshaphat was smelling something rotten here because he didn't see any prophet of God. He knew these 400 were not to be trusted. Jehoshaphat said, Is there not still a prophet of the Lord here, meaning in Israel, that we may inquire of him? And so Ahab replies, Yeah, there's this one, but I don't like him because he's always prophesying bad things about me. But he decides at Jehoshaphat's prodding that he needed to to go get him. Now let's pick it up in verse 19. Then Micaiah, he was the good prophet, said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up, that he may fall at Ramoth-Gilead? So one spoke in this manner, and another spoke in that manner. And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. Is it a good spirit, or is it a bad spirit? We will know in a minute here. The Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit. Uh Uh-oh, it's a bad one. Going to tell fibs, see? In the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you shall persuade him and shall prevail. Go out and do so. Now therefore look. The Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. Now that wasn't happy news to Ahab. We don't need to go any further. We just need to see. But we have this little view into the councils of heaven, where God had drawn into his government spirit beings, even enemies of his to counsel him on how some portion of his governance of the earth would be handled. And so God then gave the assignment to a spirit being who went out and convinced the false prophets that this was the way to go. Now, did the false prophets see a ghost? Did something cause them to have a dream? There's no indication of that. The indication is to me, at least because so many of them were involved, 400, that the spirit somehow stirred up the spirit that was in the men and put the thoughts into their mind and made them think it was theirs. Now when they all came up with the same answer, surely it must have been right. But alas, they were all unanimously wrong, led by a lying spirit. So, we can see here by these indications that spirit beings are influencing mankind. It's not enough for us just to understand that they are capable of it. God's Word shows very clearly that they are actively doing it. Good ones and bad ones. And there are some people who are so unaware of what is going on that they give themselves over to the bad ones and actually become possessed. The slave, the tool of a spirit being that is going to use them to its own ends. Now, we are beginning to see clearly established that the manipulation of Satan is on our minds. Now, let's go to Matthew, the fourth chapter. Matthew 4. Here we have the temptation of Jesus. And I want to in- interject this. Again, it's something that we are familiar with, but uh, just to reestablish it, because we want to see that, that the uh, authority and influence of specifically Satan is very great indeed. Okay, Matthew 4, verses 8 and 9. And again, the devil took him up on an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Satan's power is over all the nations of the earth. Now, in a way, that could be very frightening when we realize that he is able to influence men and he is able to do it in such a way that they're not even aware that they are being influenced toward evil, and affecting people's attitudes by moving our reasoning processes toward satisfaction of the self. In the sermon, we're going to begin moving in this direction so that we can begin to see uh, how his influence, uh, we've already seen how it comes, now we're going to begin to see the direction that it is going to come. So he gives this information and he stirs up our spirit and I've already told you that he does this by influencing us toward satisfaction of the self. Now here is what is so perverse about this. It is not evil for one to take care of himself. What is evil is to put the satisfaction of self before or preceding, or greater or more important than God or others. Now see, we are to serve God, the great commandment, before all else. And the second is like unto it, we are on an equal par with others physically. But nowhere are we given the right or privilege, if I can put it that way, by God to make ourselves greater than more important than God or other human beings. Now, you can begin to see very clearly the direction that he is going to move us toward, to where the satisfaction of the self becomes more important to us than conforming to what God said was the limit of our authority. I wrote this in my notes. Another way of putting it would be, toward the satisfaction or putting ourselves as greater or more important than righteousness or truth. Just another way of saying, essentially, the same thing. Now, let's go back to the book of Ephesians, another familiar scripture, Ephesians, the second chapter. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you he has made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin. Dead meaning as good as dead. Because of sin, the wages of sin is death. And so when God forgave us, he in effect gave us life because the death penalty was hanging over us. Verse 2, in which you once walked, that is conducted your life, according to the course of this world, remember the spirit of the world, 1 Corinthians 2, according to the prince of the power of the air, Remember Matthew 4, verses 8 and 9. He is the ruler. Jesus called him the ruler of this world. Paul called him the God of this world. So now we find he is the prince of the power of the air. The spirit, we're talking about a specific individual. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. You might recall from another sermon that that word son does not necessarily mean directly from. It means at times showing the characteristics of. So a son of disobedient would disobedience would be a disobedient person. They are showing the characteristics of disobedience. Among whom also we all, meaning Christians, once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh... Now connect this to verse 2, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the course of this world, and he is explaining what the course of this world is, according to the lust of the flesh. Connect this with 1 John 2.15, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and we're beginning to see very, very clearly, very specifically where the conduct that man shows is coming from. Man shows, reflects in his life, all these evil things, these bad things that I gave to you at the beginning, and they are coming from Satan the devil. And he is communicating them to us, and we are acting what he tells us, what he communicates us to do. The lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. Now, by the mercy of God, then, in understanding 1 Corinthians 2, that because we have been converted, because we've been given this spirit that all of mankind needs, we have been put into another category, called in the Bible, sanctified, sanctification, set apart. We are now using different terminology called the sons of God. We are called the mature, We are called those who are perfect. It depends on the context. It depends on the word the Apostle Paul or Peter happened to use. He wants us to see, though, that we are in a different category than others. And because of this, there should be in us a sensitivity to the communication that is going on from spirit beings to human beings. Now, if you're thinking with me, with this gift of sensitivity also goes the responsibility or obligation to use it. You see, it makes us, for the very first time in our lives, capable of truly making choices to go in the direction that God's Spirit is leading us. That's where the liberty comes from. You see, the liberty in Christ Jesus that we never had before. We have been released from the bondage of being a tool of spirit beings who could use us practically at their whim. Now, this verse also tells us how Satan does this. At least it gives us an illustration. Again, I do not say that this is a perfect illustration, but with our limited capability, it seems to be a good as good of an illustration that we can come up with. And that is, it is being called the prince of the power of the air. Now, we all understand that air seemingly is weightless. We move through it without resistance. We are aware that it is there, but it's something that is kind of ethereal, I guess you might call it. Ephemeral. It's part of our environment. But we also understand that this substance that is there and seemingly has no weight also has the capability, if one understands the laws, of performing awesome things in man's behalf. We understand that when the molecules of air are jammed together real close to one another, that they were they are capable of lifting an airplane that has... Weighs many, many, many tons right off the ground. You see the airplane go up, but you don't see the force that is actually lifting it up. There is awesome power in a tornado or in a hurricane. It was air that collapsed all those buildings down there in in southern Florida. Air in which all the molecules were jammed together so closely... It was almost like a baseball bat was hitting those buildings. Now, by the same token, air also has the power, the inherent ability to carry vibrations, signals through it. Now, all of us are aware that there are a multitude of radio stations, television stations that are broadcasting signals in a variety of frequencies, every one of them a little bit different from the other, and they are in the room in which you are right now, the only reason you cannot see them or cannot hear them is because you are not tuned into the frequency. But if one has a radio or television set that is capable of capturing the frequency, the broadcast, it will then change it into a form that is audible to our ears or visible to our eyes. Now from this, we can understand at least the basics of how Satan is able to communicate to human beings. He is somehow always on our wavelength because our wavelength apparently is always tuned into him, if, and this is a big if, if we will it or allow it to be so. We're getting to the important part here. The only way to block that signal from Satan is to tune it out. Now, sometimes that requires quite an exercise of will to do so, combined with our faith. But nonetheless, it can be done. We can actually tune him out. Now let's go into the book of Galatians. Galatians, the fifth chapter, because I want to pick something up here in regard to what he is broadcasting. Galatians 5, and in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are these, are evident, which are adultery, Now, Satan not only can put thoughts directly into a person's mind, but his spirit or his attitude permeates or radiates out or is broadcast from him. Now, I want you to look here at how many of these works of the flesh involve feelings, attitudes, Things like outbursts of wrath, dissensions, heresies, envy, hatred. Now, in addition to that, many of the other things that may not be directly feelings usually, very frequently, begin with a feeling as murder. It begins with a feeling and develops into a direct act. Okay, now, how does this work? And I think that you will be able to relate to this very simple illustration. Just pretend that you work in an office. No, it doesn't have to be an office. It can be a shop of some kind. But wherever it is that you work, you have a clear view of the boss, the manager, the supervisor. Because he sits in a corner office and uh, he has glass in front of it so that he's able to look out over the rest of the office or the rest of the shop. And so you're in a pretty good attitude, pretty good frame of mind. And you're uh, working away there. But somehow or another you look up, as you frequently do, look into the office there, and you see the the boss. And you can see, you can tell by the look on his face that something is bothering him. Maybe his face is a little bit flushed. Maybe he's running his fingers through his hair. Maybe you catch him with both of these combinations and he slams the door shut maybe he spins around on his chair and he gets up and he he steams around the office a little bit and it's not he's not just walking he's pacing there just then he looks out and you make eye contact with him and he holds that eye contact for just a little bit i can almost guarantee you that almost immediately Your attitude is going to change to one that is defensive and fearful. What have I done? He hasn't said a word to you. All you did was pick up from him his spirit. The attitude that was emanating out from him. But in this case, you could clearly see it. And your attitude began to change commensurate with this other person's attitude. Happens all the time. Come home from work, you're a good attitude. You meet your wife at the door, she's in a bad attitude, and immediately you're in a bad attitude. It could be vice versa. Your attitude can change in a moment without a no, not a word being said simply because you discern the mood that somebody is in. Now, on the other hand, it works the other way just as well. If you are in the room with somebody who is up, happy, a joy to be around, they always have a smile on their on their face. They always seem to have the right thing to say, say that, that builds you up. Their spirit begins to encompass you, and you are lifted by the fact that they are in a good attitude. Now, let's apply this to Satan. He's always in a bad attitude, but he is slick. You see, with his attitude, there is also deception, deviousness, those kind of, of negative things that hide, see, what he is eventually going to accomplish or hopes to accomplish through you. So we are dealing with somebody who is always deceitful. Remember what Jesus said in, in John eight forty four. 44? It's as impossible, I'm paraphrasing, it's as impossible for, G, for Satan to tell the truth as it is for God to lie. Satan is the father of lies, and what he does comes naturally to him. He speaks from himself. He has gotten to the place, he is so twisted, he is so perverted, so twisted in his thinking, that he can't think what we would consider to be a straight thought. And so what is always emanating from him ultimately comes to hate. I'll explain that a little bit later, what I mean by hate. Let's see. When I put this sermon together, I was in Charlotte. There are some 20 radio stations in Charlotte. And in addition to that, there are, I don't know, four or five, at least three, plus all of the, the television channels that come in on the cable. And even now the sound of of every one of those things, kinds of things are coming into this room. And the only reason we do not hear them is that we lack the capability to be tuned in. Now, it's the same principle that works with Satan the devil. He is always capable of tuning in to us. But we have to understand that we may have to make effort to tune him out. And so, in a way... Uh, there is always somewhat of a defensiveness about our lives. Now, we don't have to be so on guard, you know, worried that we're going to be sinning all the time, but we do have to make this uh, a part of the function of our life all the time to, to remember that he is around and that he is able to do these things. They're not always easily caught because Satan is so slick at putting them across And there are going to be times when he puts things over on us. Brethren, we can always judge where they came from by the fruits they produce. Now, what will those fruits be? They are pretty well delineated in the Bible. And there may be a multitude of what we might call fruits in the terms of actions that are created as a result. And they're given here in Galatians 5, 19. Adulteries, fornication, and things like that. I am looking for other things because there won't always necessarily be something that is so obvious a fruit produced by an activity of Satan. But we can still always nonetheless count that we're going to be able to find the source of, of the Spirit by the fruit that is produced. And the fruit will always be confusion. And then after that, it will produce division. And then after that will come warfare. Now sometimes he succeeds in producing these things without the benefit of the others. What I am giving you here is a general trajectory. First confusion, next division, And the third will be warfare. Now these things are clearly delineated in the Bible, and we will see them as we go along. Now this whole mess began when Satan told himself a lie, which he believed. And that lie was, now mark this down, because it's part of his modus operandi, and it is going to be something that he will very effectively use on us human beings. And I dare say that much of the trouble that we have in getting along with one another will begin with what I am about to tell you, because this is where it began with Satan. It began when he felt that he was not being treated as he deserved. Don't we usually strike out at other people when we begin to feel as though they're not treating us the way that we deserve? He felt that God was treating him unfairly. That's impossible. God is love. But it gave rise in him to vanity. I'm skipping over a lot of things here. But then he lied to himself about the solution. The solution was that since he wasn't being treated fairly, he would rise above that by attacking God and knocking him off the throne. Then he would be boss and have his rightful position, the one that he really deserved. Now there you have it in a nutshell. And you will find that in most cases, the confusion and the division and the warfare that takes place among men almost always follows this trajectory. Someone gets their feelings hurt. And by having their feelings hurt, the door is open to Satan, the devil. And what happens? We begin thinking, don't we? I deserve better treatment than that. Boy, they're a rat. And we begin thinking of all kinds of reasons why we should get even with them. And the next time they open up their mouth to me, boy, am I going to let them have it. We work ourselves into a state where we become bitter, or maybe depressed, But I can guarantee you that if it is not brought under control, it is going to lead to division and warfare. In a family, what is produced? Divorce. The couple go to war and they split. The same thing happens on a larger scale in nations. But this principle here is very important to understanding what is going to occur in our lives.